Hello and welcome to another episode of the Atlas Podcast. My name is Alex. I'm joined as always by Martin. Hello, Alex. How are you doing today? <laughs> it's good. For those, for the listeners, this is the first time we've actually been on camera together. Um, yeah. Alex has got a new webcam. So we do. This is I've been avoiding it all this time. <laughs> um, yeah, so this week we are recording about uh, lithium mining. So this is the rush to electric, obviously comes with unexpected consequences. Lithium, big for batteries. Uh, we also have an interview with Sophia Matviva of Tech for Non-Techies. Uh, and finally, we're going to take a quick look at document-orientated databases. Perfect. I'm looking Sounds forward good. to it. I'm ready. Excellent. Ready so yeah, the the rush, this is an article from The Guardian, you turned up, the rush to go electric comes with hidden costs, destructive lithium mining. So yeah, as we've discussed before, obviously, uh, renewable energy is all well and good, but you have to have a way to store that energy to make it reliable. I think that's the biggest um, hurdle that we have to cross, isn't it? And one of the big things or one of the main components to batteries is lithium. Um, so, yeah, this article is all about that, really, eh? Yeah, and slightly take a step back, because trying to work out what the perfect battery is, I guess, um, mm. uh, because we settled on lithium at the moment because of some of the technology, and we'll talk a little bit about that, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but what's the battery really trying to uh, achieve? Um, obviously, it's trying to store store power, uh, level of density required to be able to do its functional purpose. So therefore, there's how quickly it charges, how quickly it stores, all of these type of thing. And the chemists work away looking at all the different combinations of those types of things to ensure, um, yeah, they get the right combination. But just because lithium-ion batteries are a marvel and have helped revolutionize all mobile technology under the world, it doesn't mean to say that they're the perfect battery um, and there are some new advances still occurring in the um, uh, solid state batteries or um, obviously graphene often comes up in any conversation to do with anything where they're trying to squeeze more power out of anything even my trainers have got graphene in these days so <laughs> um, you can't get away from the stuff yeah so you know trying to work out what the perfect battery is is something that really is about, um, you know, how big, how big an energy can it store in what kind of package and how many cycles that kind of, what's the effect of the recharging? How many cycles does it have as an impact of that? But also we have to think of those kind of, yeah, what, what's the natural resources required and how plentiful are those natural resources? Because I think we talked about the hydrogen fuel cell before, where we talked about that's got, um, um, I want to say plutonium. I don't think it's plutonium. Um, platinum. It's platinum. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. One of the PLs. So, yeah, really expensive um, aspects to it. So there are lots of different types of, you know, batteries, um, obviously lead acid from a point of view of uh, what happens in the car, because a lot of... So, yeah, that's not the only advance. So I think... It's a really great step forward, but there's always incremental steps that are occurring all the time. But trying to find, or the chemists are trying to find that perfect blend. I mean, if it was, a, I guess, 
well, aluminium or iron battery that could be mined plentiful and had the same energy capacity, had the same charging cycles and had a small factor, form factor, mm. then um, that's definitely what they're after. So, um, yeah, some interesting things around some of the solid state stuff. So this article specifically was around the lithium mining yeah. aspect of it. In the Atacama uh, Desert, I know, is uh, yeah one of the main places where I guess it exists in, um, or lithium exists in high concentration. Yeah, well, it's really very reactive. Once again, chemistry is not my area at all, but, you know, <laughs> very reactive. And, uh, you know, I remember from school chemistry, you can set fire to metal, and that was like, well, this is amazing. And then some metal just um uh, self-ignite so you know yeah that part of the periodic table is quite a uh, quite a combustible area and one of the reasons why we can't take batteries on planes and things like that or they at least get a little bit twitchy about certain types of batteries yeah when so flying. things like um i know because i know always going back to elon the tesla power banks are they lithium based or are they is there new technologies going on there um there would well there's definitely that bridges us nicely onto the probably one of the one of the main people in the battery technology <laughs> um which <laughs> you're already laughing because you love his name good um, old musk <laughs> well i was thinking more about um john good oh john b good enough yes <laughs> just discovered him my new favorite person well, you're going to do a bit of a, hopefully, a, a deep dive on him next week. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, so there, there, there's a lot of news articles around, you know, Tesla adopting some of these more advanced technologies um, mm. that uh, John Goodenough is still, I think, um, plowing away at. Um, he won the Nobel Prize along with a few others in, I think it was 2019 around the lithium ion battery, but I don't think he's finished. I think, you know, these guys have got these, <laughs> what else can we do? We've already cracked that one. What, what, what's yeah. the next thing can we tackle? Um, so it'd be fascinating to see where that goes. So, but that just comes back to that natural resource discussion, which the article talks about and the, the effects of lithium mining. Um, but that could change in an instant. That, that's the thing with new technologies or new material sciences. One minute this thing is needed, um, and it's a. I don't think it's an uh, uh, an element that's used in many things, um, and therefore it's like okay, we can mine it for batteries. But if there's a new technology tomorrow, a different way of doing it, the focus will be in a completely different area. But for the time being, yeah, it's another area we have to be careful because it's also the metals and the to toxicity of them. Um, yeah. which has to be considered. And that's really what this article gets into, that with new technology, there's no there's no easy win sometimes. Um, and the environmental impact of potentially scarce resources has to come into that equation. Yeah. And that's the other thing, I guess, as well, is any sort of rare element, you have to go where it is. It uh, is always going to provide an issue in terms of yeah transporting it and all the rest of it. First of all, I guess yeah the carbon impact, but second, like you say, these are reactive elements, 
so there's anybody who works with them needs the proper training and equipment and all the rest of it yeah it becomes a bit of a minefield wow exactly until we can start mining those asteroids <laughs> get the robots on it that's what i say yeah so excellent i thought it was a nice interesting article about you know we talk about sustainability and these types of things we are just a you know, rock third rock from the planet and therefore everything is finite ultimately um, until we can explore other ways of producing this stuff absolutely all right uh, i think it's time we jumped into our chat with sophia And so, for this interview portion of the Atlas podcast, we are joined by Sophia Matviva of Tech for Non-Techies. Thank you for joining us, Sophia. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excellent stuff. Uh, yeah, I, we spoke a little bit before we started about how uh, I felt there was perhaps a little synergy because we, as a software development company, come at tech from an accessible uh, yeah, angle. And obviously, that's sort of perhaps a bit of a leading thought for you in tech for non-techies. So how did you get into the area of tech? How did you start? How did you get here? Well, completely from outside, which is now why I run a company uh, called Tech for Non-Techies. So uh, at universities, I studied political science. And that was at the University of Bristol and the University of Chicago in the US. And then I worked in the media and in private equity. So I had interesting jobs, definitely in kind of uh, sectors that people admire, I guess. Some people admire at least. Um, but then I decided to get my MBA at Chicago Booth. And for people who don't know about MBAs, it's consistently ranked as the global number one uh, by The Economist and by Business Week. And so, and it's also part of the University of Chicago where I went to before. So off I go. And when I'm there, I thought, well, I don't want to go back to finance. And, you know, when you're in London, that's it's it's easy to kind of fall into that finance trap. It's for um, sure. Then, uh, so I thought, well, the tech sector is really where I want to go. And it was at business school that I started working on an idea uh, for a tech company, a fashion tech company. And, you know, smart business school students, very keen to transition into the tech sector. That's for all the rages. But the thing is, business schools, even the best ones, they don't really teach people about how tech products are made. So you get all the strategy, you understand the strategy of Facebook, you understand the competitive strategy of startups, but you don't actually know how the stuff in them is made. And so uh, with the project that I was working on, we actually got into the top accelerator, the top academic accelerator in the US, uh, which is part of Chicago Booth, it's where Grubhub and Braintree came out of. We got to this point where literally our business plan had been through all of this acceleration bit. We'd had all of this user testing stuff, but none of us knew the first thing about like how does an app actually get made? You know, just simple concepts like what is a tech stack? Like I didn't know that there is a back end and a front end because honestly, who comes out of the womb knowing this stuff? <laughs> and that, I, that, even that phrase, the old back-end, front-end developer, when you're in the development world, that, that's just normal parlance. But 
if outside of it, it sounds like a really strange terminology, doesn't it? I'm a back-end developer, but you know, no, no one says that in everyday talk, do they? So, yeah, it's an interesting approach that you know, we, we've talked to a lot of people from universities and professors and things like that who, who talk about that kind of brain drain from the tech industry. So you get a lot of people that do uh, technology um, and get you know, A-grade students. And like you said, they, they, they do the other way around. They, they move to the city. They get attracted by um, the potential you know, big bucks in that area and things like that. And, and therefore, yeah, the, the focus around technology, and especially when we talk about um, equality and things like that, is, is very disproportionate as well, isn't it? So yeah, I find it fascinating that you've come the other way. And what, what was that kind of, what was the motivation for you? In that particular area was it purely just to understand the technology or was there other motivations behind that well you know i think that's a question about why does one set up a company and uh, now i'm onto my second venture uh, and that actually came out of the first venture so i uh, i was really interested in what was happening in the tech world because it seemed basically more interesting and more innovative and also by the time I had worked in a private equity firm, I thought, well, this is probably as good as it's going to get. Sort of in the world of finance, there's you know, investment banking and then the private equity and hedge funds kind of sit on, the, on a higher echelon. And so once I made it there, and I was about 28, and I honestly, I really didn't like it. It just was not for me. And I thought, I'm not doing this. Like, there's no way. But I want to have a good career. I want to have an interesting career in a growing sector. And most MBAs go to banking or consulting. And I thought, absolutely not. I'm not doing that. I want to get into the tech sector. Started working an idea. Once, so as I said, as, as I was telling you guys, once we got through the accelerator, I actually ended up uh, hiring uh, some developers. So I, I raised some money, hired some developers, and essentially ended up learning on the job how to manage a product team. Like I didn't know what a product manager was. And this I this actually I find is quite common. So there are smart business people who really want to get into the tech sector because it's interesting, it's innovative, and frankly, there are a lot of smart people working in the tech sector. But as we were just saying, if you don't know the basic terms, it just feels like it's this different language. Well, I'd say that it kind of feels like it's this nightclub where all the cool kids, they're kind of in the nightclub and you're standing outside asking the bouncer to let you in. And they're like, no, it's, it's not for you. <laughs> I think that's the first time I've ever heard of the, the, the world of the nerdy back-end developer being called the cool kids. Anyway, I think, yeah, it's a really interesting perspective that you bring into it. And also... Obviously, I love that idea of fresh ideas coming into whatever we're doing as an industry and fresh perspectives. And you've also got a, you know, a, an innovative okay, image that comes with that as well. And if anyone checks out your kind of website and stuff like that, it's a, it's a very accessible image. And, uh, and how do you, how was that kind of, was that coming from the business side where you brought that kind of um, polish to how everything was presented? Well, so thank you very much. <laughs> I did mention that I began my career in the media. So if you begin by working in the media in London, you know, you're going to get polished. It's a pretty high caliber there. But also, I would say that 
what I really want to do right now with Tech for Non-Techie, so as a non-technical founder of my first tech company, first I was incredibly embarrassed of this non-technical founder status because I think Silicon Valley would have you believe that you're as a non-technical founder, you need adult supervision in the form of a CTO. And you're kind of like the second class citizen. And once I actually realized that as a founder, you don't need to actually build the product yourself. You can work with people like you, smart people who will help you build products together. Then, you know, and by the way, I'm massively shortening the time frame here because first, you know, first there was lots and lots of shame about all the things that I was not. And there was a very gradual embrace of actually this is this is normal. This is why you have teams. This is why you co-create. It's about co-creation rather than doing everything with your bare hands. And then I actually did start thinking about, well, I want, I want other people like me to know about this. I do want to make tech more accessible. And when we're talking about image, you can't divorce your image from your message. So I was thinking, well, I do want to explain to people who are like me, who don't have technical backgrounds, who want to maybe work in product management in a tech company. Maybe they want to set up their own idea. Or maybe they want to work in a tech company in a non-technical role, but in order to be successful in tech company, for example, in marketing, you need to understand what's going on there. Um, I mean, talking about that, talking about the kind of people who engage with tech for non-techies, by the way, we will put links to everything in the show. There's a fantastic podcast, obviously lots of great courses you can attend. Um, have you found the kind of people who've engaged with you on that platform have followed a similar route to you? Or is there any surprises in the kind of people who sign up and listen and get in contact? So I would say that there's a general uh, sort of image as well. But I think it's kind of like it gets like. So my first company started in a business school. And then when I started teaching my course, Tech for Non-Technical Founders, it was London Business School that invited me to come and uh, essentially start teaching there as well. And so the audience ended up being smart business people who are desperate to get into tech, and which is where I think business schools are really letting them down, honestly. Um, and so now, so for example, we're literally uh, about to close enrollment for the next course, which we're starting on Monday. And one of the people is uh, about to start her MBA at Harvard. So she's taking my course before she goes to Harvard. Uh, another person that we've already got taking the course who is an alumnus, um, he is somebody who's actually, he is a surprise in a way. So I'll say it's surprising what people end up doing, but it's not surprising who they are. So generally, the people who come, they're very smart. They already have some kind of success. And they've already tried to kind of navigate tech. And they've already basically failed or been, no, I wouldn't say failed. They've already kind of felt rejected or they've already come up against jargon that they don't know how to solve. So they already are trying to get into the tech sector. And they kind of feel like, well, I've got this experience. I've got the success. You know, I've got all these accolades. What the hell is going on? What are these people <laughs> And so, uh, so for example, one other person that literally recently finished my course, uh, he is uh, a banker, so former banker, and he is about to acquire a product development company. So he's going to be the, the major investor in this company. 
he knows the cash flow, he knows that this company is growing, but if he is going to be the major investor in this company, he needs to understand what the people in the company actually do. Mm. <laughs> which is why he's taken my course and learned about what is user experience design, what is backend development, what is frontend development, how does it all fit together. And when I used to speak to developers and ask them this, what would end up happening is that developers, as lovely as they are, because you guys have been doing it for so long, you don't know when you're speaking jargon. So, so developers tend to explain jargon with jargon, which basically leaves people like me secretly Googling what on earth you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be quite honest, we, we, I guess we're, we're definitely from a tech background, well, especially myself. So I do, I do the product of ownership of, of our, our own technology. Um, but it's, it's, it's been a steep learning curve for myself as well uh, as a part of that because it wasn't a, a natural thing to move into. But one of the things I found with it, which I think is the interesting thing on the business side, is a lot of the time it's about ideas. It's about having that idea, understanding the gap in the market and everything like this, and uh, and then trying to utilize things like user experience to find out whether you're um, satisfying that customer in an appropriate way and things like this. And I always I slightly use this analogy that when you make something, whether that's software or hardware, you've got to have somebody who wants to buy it. And I think all too often in the software industry, because it's more of a, a technically led approach it's like everybody's technically doing stuff they really enjoy doing and funky stuff but they don't always think oh someone's got to buy this in the end um, and that's the gap i see that you're, you're really filling there is saying actually there's a business angle that needs to be brought to this um, and actually a lot of the technical people are just having fun programming and maybe not necessarily focused on the fact that um yeah you have to make a, a business and you have to think of software of, of every bit of code you produce or every feature you buy, uh, make has got to have a purpose that a customer wants. And maybe that angle is missing and your approach brings those elements to it as well. You know, it's interesting you say that because I just realized I didn't answer your question properly when you said, are there any surprises? The biggest thing <laughs> I've had is that developers have now started listening to my podcast and coming to some of my free webinars. So I haven't yet had a developer who's actually taken the full course. And which, honestly, I think if that happened, like, oh, let's say when that happens, I'm probably going to be a bit nervous because obviously they know much more about technology than I do. But I've literally asked developers, I was like, Were you, what are you doing here? <laughs> and what they say is that, I want to know how the business side thinks. And so I totally agree with you that actually there is this digital divide between the two sides. And so I literally just started, I first started looking at, well, what do non-technical founders need to know about tech? But then I started saying, well, what do non-technical professionals need to know about technology if they're working in a tech-enabled business? But now as developers are coming, I'm... I, I haven't yet decided what I'm going to do about it, uh, but I'm just seeing that there is definitely this interest from curious developers, from people who essentially take their careers seriously, because, you know, if you take your career seriously, then you know that you are going to have to work successfully with people who are non-technical and kind of have a common language. And I think that those more curious developers 
when they find me, they think, well, let me at least eavesdrop on their conversation so I can see what they're worrying about. So this is, I do wonder, so for example, what have you thought, uh, what have you seen in the digital divide from your side? What are the misunderstandings for example, that you see happen from developers and, I don't know, and misunderstandings and frustrations from the other side? Because I do think we're solving the same problem from two different angles. Yeah, and, and I think that's, well, that's kind of where I was slightly touching on is that, is that this developers, especially, yeah, the core development team are really focused on making sure they're producing the best code, um, looking at the new technology, the technology stacks that are arriving and where, where the latest trends, uh, and there's a lot to look at in that area. And um, you know, and then it does depend on the back end and front end developer because they have, once again they have a very different view on the world. Um, uh, the front end developer is concerned about the look and feel, um, how usable the application is. Works very more closely with the UX developer, and the UX developer wants to please the customer, um, but it still doesn't quite touch into that area as kind of saying you've got to have the idea you've got to have the gap in the market you've got to you know to start implementing some of those things like minimum viable product approaches it, it's fine to have some great ideas if you like but if if you haven't got that oh where is that gap can i produce a minimum viable product how do i introduce that into the market what's the go-to-market strategy and all those types of things i think is the area that a, a lot of the tech startups just start up in that kind of oh want to produce something isn't this fun and not necessarily thinking of that business angle and i i find it fascinating what you're saying is that actually there's a whole business world out there who would be interested in you know that bringing their knowledge and shaping the way that um tech is produced um because at the moment that's not my experience of it is kind of almost the cart before the horse. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it's a, a fascinating area to understand. I don't think anyone really wants to produce stuff that people don't want. Um, that comes down to the heart of it. And those developers, as you said, who are curious beyond their own domain are looking at, okay, well, what do people want? How can we make it better? What does that mean? What are the business models associated to that? Um, yeah, so there's 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 a, a really interesting gap there. I think that you're looking to fill with that kind of education engagement process that um, only through this kind of interviews made me think more about it. Really, so I don't think I've answered your question. I've slightly rambled on, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's an interesting thought process. Stream of consciousness, I think, is happening there. Um, no, I don't but, we, we general magic because it really talks about. Uh, what we're just discussing now so have you seen general magic i don't think so oh it's a, I, okay everybody listen to this podcast after you finish this podcast <laughs> stop whatever you're doing and watch general magic uh, <laughs> okay basically about the offshoot of apple that built the original kind of what the iphone became mm. it's called the general magic team and it was a bunch of very very smart tech people who essentially got quite a lot of money to work on this product. And I think it was like in the late 90s, so very, very early. And they actually did invent something, but because they didn't uh, 
They didn't think about the business side. The product was extremely expensive, way more expensive than the market could bear. And um, basically, it ended up, they ended up, they IPO'd, they had a lot of press coverage. It was definitely something interesting. But when it actually came to people buying the thing, it just didn't happen. It was a very expensive flop. And uh, the people who went, who were there, they went on to be either the founders or the early founding teams of some of the you know tech giants that we know today. And kind of just watching this, so General Magic, the movie, it's a doc- documentary. And just mm-hmm. watching this documentary, it just made me think of a Greek tragedy because you know what's going to happen. <laughs> because you, you know the iPhone came much later. But you just see all of these very smart people but just, and they're working very, very hard. So it's not that people were lazy, mm. but uh, there was a bit of, you know, it's chasing one's tail, I guess. But, you know, also at that time, people didn't re- really know about minimum viable products and UX testing. So maybe it's because mm. of them that we are now saving money. Yeah. Could be. Also, I think, yeah, looking at what you do with uh, something like tech for non-techies, it's sort of building... Um, I guess a common language where the business side can talk to the tech side and I think people will always have their expertise but if you understand something of what the other side is doing you can collaborate so much better and achieve more success um, without having to be 100% in one side or the other. Um, I guess one of my main questions is, now that you're you're a few years into these sort of projects, do you consider yourself a tech or a non-techie? Oh, definitely a proud non-techie. And, okay. You're still uh, still on that side of the fence. Well, the thing is, I mean, I've taken some coding courses, and guys, I was really bad at them, and I didn't enjoy <laughs> them. And I'm just not, you know, like, it's not a good use of my time. And... Um, when I was doing my MBA, I really saw something that what business schools do well is um, they don't do the technology aspects well, but essentially what they teach you is that if you're going to be you know, the boss of a company, you will need to work with lawyers and with accountants and you would need to work with some strategy people and some marketing people. And your job is not to do all of these jobs, but you, your job is to collaborate with them. So let's take lawyers. The whole point of hiring a lawyer is that you don't have to go to law school and know all the stuff yourself. And when you are a business person, you, you kind of you work out or you know uh, how to work with a legal counsel. So why don't we have the same kind of education of, well, how do you work with a CTO? How do you work with a product team? What do these people actually do? And I didn't see any of that, but I, I kind of I saw I saw the general thinking of if you're going to be successful in a career, whatever, you know, whether you're running the show or you are running a department, you will need to collaborate with people who do different things. And I remember I met the former chief technology officer of Netflix and I asked him, like, what does what does the board actually do? Like, how do you how do you speak to each other? Like, how do you how does a CTO collaborate with a CFO and the CEO because this is this is essentially what you have to do at the management level and it was interesting kind of how he told me about the way that they would approach a problem but they would approach the same problem but all, all with a point of uh, with a different point of view so he was saying you know imagine if we want to launch in a, in a new market so 
I would be thinking about our server capacity and how that's going to uh, how that's going to impact on all these new users and all this new content. How that's going to impact us. So then I will need to say that okay, we are going to this is this is going to uh, be much bigger than what we've already got. The CFO will then think, well, how much is this going to cost? In that case, do we need to get a loan? Like, where do we need to raise our prices? What are we going to do? And this is what, I, and I found that really kind of an interesting example is that these are very different jobs, you know, the finance person and the tech person, but essentially they are coming to solve the same problem with their own levels of expertise. And this is what I'm, this is what I really want to do with tech on tech is, but in general, you know, the more the non-tech sides understood the tech side and vice versa, I think the more the more interesting jobs we'd all have and the better we'd all collaborate. And I think also the better products we would all have as well. I couldn't agree more. Uh, so what, tell us a bit about um, what's going on at the moment, what's coming up in the future, what's exciting things are just down the road for you, Sophia? Well, uh, so I have been living in the French Riviera during the pandemic. And next week, uh, I'm coming back to London. So first of all, I'm very excited about being back in London. Although, I don't know if I, I don't know how I'm going to react to taking the tube again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but our consumer offering, so the Techfinantechies course, that's doing well, it's growing, so I'm going to carry on doing that. But um, what I'm also really looking forward to is actually scaling our offering to companies because we've had a few pilots and I'm seeing that actually there is a need. And uh, from autumn onwards, I can't say who the people are yet, we haven't yet announced it, but from autumn onwards, essentially what we are going to be doing is we're going to be taking what I've learned as a non-technical founder about dealing, about working successfully with product teams and essentially teaching that at larger companies. And what my aim is, is for large companies to have a subscription to Tech for Non-Techies so they can either take courses or they can learn. But what's even better is that, what my aim is that people who work in these large companies who might be embarrassed about what they don't know, because this happens a lot. I think there's a lot of shame about what people don't know. And I would love for them to literally just have this capacity to be able to write a question, which will probably start with, this is probably a stupid question, but mm. what is a X, Y, Z? And then either me or somebody from my team who is actually, who's, who not only knows the answer, but also knows how that person thinks and knows how to explain it to them. So you don't get the problem of developers, you know, talking to you about servers and APIs and you're thinking, are you talking about waiters? What the hell? <laughs> So this, this is where we're going. And obviously, as, as I mentioned, for the, my aim is also for the Tech on Techies podcast to keep growing and to reaching more people um, because I think the more we bridge the digital divide from both sides, I think the more the world will be a better, more fun and more welcoming place. Fantastic. Uh, I think we're sort of, we're parting up against time. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, Martin. Wow, I was just going to say exactly the same. Fascinating stuff. Great place to end, I think. There, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, really enjoyed the conversation, bringing a yeah really different perspective into it. So, um, 
fascinating stuff. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. I really, really love this because I do, I do think that we're solving the same problem, but it's a, it's a big enough problem for a lot of smart people to, to solve. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about your progress as well. Fantastic. Yeah. And as I said, we'll put links to everything on uh, the episode description. And, uh, we look forward to speaking to you soon. Awesome. So let's get into our tech spot for this week, which is the, I have to say, thrillingly named Document Orientated Databases. We've talked, we talked a lot about um, data and, we have. and how to manage data. And we talked a bit about uh, Kafka and Kafka streams and message busing and things like this. But what underpins it all has been yeah, database, database technologies. And um, really where I started creeping into the world of IT was looking at uh, database um, and how to create those kind of entity relationships within the databases. And the interesting thing then back when I did it with Open University was um, it was all about SQL, really. So what's SQL? Well, SQL is kind of a short-term, a short-handed uh, way of pointing to a classification of database technologies. Um, and it really doesn't make that much sense because it means structured query language, um, which is a way of actually querying data from a database, not necessarily the underlying database technologies. I was going to get... ask because I, I have worked with lots of, yeah, various techie people, and I know SQL, MySQL, SQL has come up a lot. Um, and I've certainly probably even written promotional stuff for it without actually knowing what the acronym is, but it's good to know. So yeah. sequence query language. Structured, is that right? Structured, structured query, query language. language. Yeah. So like I said, it is just a, it's another way of doing a programming language for which mm. to um, manage databases, to uh, create tables, to create relationships, um, and then query that database um, to be able to extract information from it. <clears throat> so yeah, there's quite a lot that goes behind that. And each database provider has some slight different variations on the data, the SQL standards that they use ultimately. But these have been dominant in the market for quite a while um, with the likes of Oracle and Microsoft um, having their kind of SQL server technologies and things like this. And, and they're very good at creating a, like I said, an entity relationship. What do you mean by entity? Entities are things of the world. So you could have a, a company that has a relationship with the, um, uh, with the, the customers or whatever it is, mm. or the products they produce. And therefore, you create these kind of entities, and then you look at how they have a relationship to each other whether it's a one-to-many relationship between those entities. Um, and then you can build those constraints into those relationships. Therefore, uh, the SQL database technology is, is very good at having a, a, a structure and then enforcing the rules around that structure to make sure that you don't break those rules. Um, but with the growth, as we often point to, of internet technology, where they like to be a bit more of a rule breaker, um, they kind of get, actually, we don't need that hard and fast structured rule-based approach. 
what we want is something far more flexible because if you think of like hashtags or things like that, you know, they're not, you don't know how they're going to be received or managed, is this. They're going to be, uh, you want to be able to adopt to the environment, if you like, in a, in a dynamic way, which SQL databases well, aren't necessarily that good at doing, really. Um, and that's the big difference. And that's why there's, there are lots of different types of database technologies. They've probably been around for a long time, but they've never really found the need for them. And um, there's been um, uh, object-orientated databases as well, which is kind of more akin to a document database. Um, mm -hmm. So a document database, as the definition of it kind of means, it means uh, a way to store information, retrieve information, and manage document-orientated information in a kind of semi-structured way, um, but allowing for that kind of flexibility of it. And if you think of the a word document itself, it has a document structure behind it, especially with the um, DocX um, kind of XML-based approach. Um, there's, a, there's, there's a structure behind how that document actually looks in reality. And so mm -hmm. documents don't necessarily align purely to the entity relationship approach that SQL databases do. But they have some big benefits that because they don't have to manage the entity relationship constraints and all of those kind of things, you can you can be more flexible with how you store things. Um, you can uh, be more flexible about how you move data around and how you append information to it. And therefore, overall, the, generally, um, the performance of how you store data and retrieve data from a document DB is far, far quicker than with an SQL database approach. Um, and so much so, this category of technologies kind of got this phrase called no SQL, um, which is, you know, like a, a one of the main categories of a document DB. So sometimes people use no SQL and document DB quite interchangeably. Mm -hmm. um, but as with language, calling something a no SQL seems quite weird if you know it doesn't yeah it doesn't have perhaps a positive connotation to it yeah yeah defining, like, defining yourself by what you're not is never great but yes exactly you're kind of rejecting that thing over there and we're this other thing that's left over um but you know it's, it's that's why i think the terminology has been more favored talking more about the kind of document orientated databases rather than the no sql um, approach but it, it, it lends itself to things that are used heavily in high-level programming, like key value store, so key value pairs and things like this, um, as just a way of managing that information in a more flexible way um, and storing a lot of metadata. I mean, metadata is one of those terminologies that's come up quite a lot um, in that concept. So you have the document and you have the document's metadata, which defines more information about what that thing is. Um, and uh, yeah, so there are a whole load of stuff. And one of the things when we started doing, uh, looking at this with what we do with Atlas, um, is one I was very keen on that concept of being able to challenge the status quo of uh, a hierarchical um, SQL structure and actually going, well, do we even need SQL databases? Can we? Um, create a defensive programming around a document 
based databases that required that we got the best of both worlds. And what I mean by that was the SQL itself, if you tried to do something it didn't like, it would report back an error. The problem with that, you've always got to handle those errors, you know? So that's that's one problem with have putting constraints into databases that you still have to know what to do if you get an error, a, a referential constraint error. Um, mm. But with a document DB, you don't necessarily get the same types of error because you have more flexibility around it, really. Um, but that it gives it more, so it gives it more yeah. wiggle room, really. Yeah. And you, yeah. what you do, what I mean by defensive programming is you're you're programming the um, how you're going to manage the data and manage the errors within the program itself, and not relying on the database to um, manage all of that for you. And therefore, you're being more defensive in the way that you're you're programming it to handle errors at source rather than allowing the document the database technology itself to handle those errors. Um, and once again, that allows for that kind of speed and performance uh, that we kind of rely on with it. So, yeah, you, you do need to have a different methodology, a different mentality around how you how you design schemas in the in the inverted commas for um, document based databases. You've really got to see how that data is going to be used. Um, and I know you know people like MongoDB is one of the document DBs that we use. Um, are looking at trying to solve some of those problems themselves because um, you know how to query out of a, a, a document-based database when you don't have those kind of relationships as you do with an SQL database makes for a level of complexity that you don't have with SQL, for example. Mm. So yeah, you, there are pros and cons with both, but if you can get that sweet spot where you've got the integrity of the data, You've got the performance of both how you're going to write data and how you're going to read data, um, and how you can manipulate and join data from various data sources together to be able to report on it or utilize it. Then you've kind of got you're moving towards um, somewhere near the perfect database. Um, you've almost uh, got your full packet solution. Yeah, exactly. So that's one of the like I said, one of the reasons we're really interested in it because of the the growth, the replication, the speed, the performance. Um, we do work with the uh, Cosmos DB, which is a, a Microsoft-based um, uh, cloud uh, database technology, and that can replicate across every single data center within the Azure um, you know, globe. Mm -hmm. So you could have a single database that you stored all that information, and it automatically replicates it across the 27 other global data centers. Um, without the need for things like extract, transform, and load, which is the traditional way of getting information out of a uh, SQL, database, SQL database when you're trying to either manipulate it or move it between one database and another. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely um, lots and lots of uh, work to be done on trying to get to the perfect database, but I think more lots and more possibilities too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. More and more businesses are thinking of non-SQL or no-SQL type te uh, technologies that align far more with things like JSON messaging, um, cloud technology, uh, serverless and all that type of thing. Um, mm. uh, and it's becoming more and more of a popular um, uh, way of solving the same problem. Yeah, but I think that's an interesting point as well with 
uh, it sort of proves out that cliche of necessity as a mother of invention. So it's how businesses are using them, how they would best benefit from them, tends to lead the development of these technologies as well. Yeah, yeah, and like I said, they, these well, could, these I'm sure document DBs. If I looked at the history of them, have been around for years, mm. um, uh, probably as long as SQL, and they, they've morphed and changed and trends in the market and how things, um, the necess necessity of the internet have driven things in different directions, basically, mm. um, and uh, I think that journey is still being travelled. Good. Well, we'll keep an eye on it and we'll keep using it. And we've got yeah. some clever developers as well. I'm sure they'll invent something entirely new next week. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll get them on to talk about it next time rather than me from a, from a oh, I remember when I used to use systems. <laughs> oh, that's what people want to hear, though. Yeah. We don't want too much information. <laughs> Skirting on the edge of what I know is always what we like to do. Surf That's the edge of knowledge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, thank you so much. That was very enlightening. And thank you all for joining us for another episode of the Atlas podcast. Uh, I'm going to leave you with a short quote this time. I've gone literary, sci-fi, one of the greats, Isaac Asimov. And he says, I do not fear computers. I fear lack of them. Which fits wow. almost entirely with our day-to-day. <sighs> <laughs> I've never thought of the fear of lack of computers, though. Well, I had some IT problems yesterday, and I realized how little I could get done without a computer. <laughs> you almost got your typewriter out. Back yeah. to all of wasn't it? That's it. Pen and paper doesn't cut it these days, unfortunately. <laughs> but it does make you wonder, Alex, you know, going back whenever we travel and we use our GPS systems to go from A to B rather than our maps and all that type of thing. You know, we can do a lot more, a lot quicker with stuff, but we've always got an infinite amount of things to do. We do. So, you know, we can do things quicker, but there's still so much more to be done and proved and stuff like that. There's always something to fill the space. Yes. So, um, you know, we never get to the end. <laughs> Good. It's all about until, the journey. Until now, until now, at the end of the podcast. Here we go. Yes. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure, and uh, I will see you next week. Thanks, Alex. If you have any thoughts on the Atlas podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at weareatlas.com. Follow us on Twitter at ATS underscore Atlas, and you can like our LinkedIn page found in the episode description. If you want to know more about Atlas products, services, and projects, head over to our website, weareatlas.com, to find out more.